Uh, I'm in the upside down. down. It's cold and it's dark. Don't don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Not at night. It's cold and it's dark. It's cold and it's dark. It's just like like it's just like our world, but I'm in a swimming pool. (laughs) Have you watched any Stranger Things yet, Andrew? everyone and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character in a great story i'm todd mack and i'm joseph Jarowski. and today we're talking about eleanor and marianne dashwood from sense and sensibility how are you joseph i am doing okay little um light on the sleep lately but that happens <laughs> that was me last week <laughs> well tag i'm it i guess but you know it'll settle down young children will sleep more i'll have fewer projects going on but i the- think- the good thing is that you have the long synopsis, so there's no chance of you falling asleep like I may or may not have last week <laughs> during the long synopsis. Um, I wouldn't say no no chance, Todd. But <laughs> <laughs> Little chance, less chance. Yes. Uh, today, awesome. we are talking, as was said, about Sense and Sensibility, a novel by Jane Austen that was first published in 1811. It is about the Dashwood family, particularly the recently widowed mother and her two eldest daughters, Eleanor and Marianne, as they navigate the difficult waters of romance and finances for women in Regency-era Britain. In other words, this is a Jane Austen novel. It is, it is absolutely a Jane Austen novel. Yeah, uh, no mistaking it. Uh, when was the first time you read Sense and Sensibility? Uh, I can't remember the first time I read it. I know I first like knew what the story was when I my mom took us all to see the 1995 film version. So I would have been, at that point, uh, 13 years old when I first saw a, an adaptation of Sense and Sensibility. I probably read it in college at some point uh, for the first time. That's the Is that the Emma Thompson one? Yeah. I... I I know, I know this later. It is a perfect adaptation, <laughs> I would say. Really? Yeah, it is so good. And this says, is Alan Rickman in that? Yes, indeed. No. He's, he's Colonel Brandon. Colonel Brandon. I'm looking at IMDb. Why does he? Oh, there he is. He's cleared out at the bottom. My goodness. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13th on the list. After Hugh Grant and, uh, oh, what's, what's, uh. After everybody. James Fleet, Tom Wilkinson. Harriet Walter, Kate Winslet, Emma Thompson, Gemma Jones, Hugh Grant, Emily Francois, Elizabeth Spriggs, Robert Hardy, Ian Bribble, Isabel Ames, and Alan Rickman. My goodness. Feels like he should be higher up. Uh, what about you, Todd? <laughs> when, when did you come to Sense and Sensibility? The first time I saw the, uh, the first time I knew about the story, I mean, I've heard of, I had heard of the story. But I had never seen the film or read the book until it was 2008. I had um, I had foot surgery. I had my, one of my f- feet kind of reconstructed, sort of, and I was out of commission for a while. <laughs> and we actually stayed in these people this these people's house in California that lent us their house, and they had a big DVD collection. And I made my way through it, <laughs> and uh, Sense and Sensibility was on there, and I watched it, and then. I had all these false memories associated with it, which really messed up my reading of it this time. But uh, I listened to it on Audible. Uh, that was the first time that I like read or, you know, engaged with the text itself and not an adaptation. Yes, uh, and that was just over the past few days. 
How was the Audible version? It is. It's really good. Um, it's narrated by Juliet Stevenson, and she's awesome. She does a really, really good job. Juliet Stevenson. Well, listeners, if you would like to hear the Audible version of Sense and Sensibility, you can do that for free by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. And with that, uh, you get a free audiobook. And you have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, or your MP3 player. And if this novel sounds good, you uh, could go ahead and just select Sense and Sensibility. Or I imagine the entire works of Jane Austen are probably present on Audible. I just want to say, I want to say two things about Audible. I know I've said this before, but it bears saying again. I know that you can get audio versions of Sense and Sensibility and other uh, classic novels it, that are in the public domain, but the people that do the narrations of these Audible books are am- they are amazing. And if you're, I don't know, a college student or a high school student and or you know one, if you have this book as assigned reading and they're struggling to get through the book, I really highly, highly recommend getting uh, the Audible version of this because it is delightful. Like, laugh out loud funny uh, to hear this woman do all of these amazing voices of these really crazy characters that are in this book. For me, because of the film version, I could never imagine any voice for Colonel Brandon other than Alan Rickman. She does a pretty good job. Um, Her best, the woman that does this narration, her best voices are like uh, all of the gossipy people. Of which there are many. <laughs> there are tons of them, and they all say, Oh, don't you think she's monstrous pretty? Or prodigious! Like, she just says that all these hilarious uh, things that these people say, and she says it in such a fantastic way. It's uh, it's really delightful. Well, once again, listeners, uh, you should go access that by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Now, Todd, I have a little bit of trivia about this. I'm sure there's hardly anything online about no, this. No, no one really likes to talk about Jane Austen stuff. Okay, this was Jane Austen's first novel, and as with all of her novels, it was published anonymously. So, um, none of her works had her name on them in her lifetime. <laughs> I did not know that. When Sense and Sensibility was published, it said, by a lady. Well, at least she was able to publish it as a lady. Yeah. Um, and then when it went into a second printing, so this was her first novel, her second was Pride and Prejudice, and Pride and Prejudice, Prejudice was very popular. So when it went into a second printing, it said, by the author of Pride and Prejudice. Why did she feel the need to publish anonymously? If it, I mean, it, it sh- should not have been because she was a lady, because she published it by a lady. Right. Um, right? Yes. But I think at the time with her, her family station, um, writing was considered beneath like they they weren't like uber wealthy, and I'm sorry if any listeners know Jane Austen's life better than I do. <laughs> I am drawing back from some college. Class. I can't imagine that, and I can't imagine that any of our readers do. Our um, listeners, I, I think writing was uh, considered beneath her family's class, and so interesting. She did not want to be seen. I, I know I heard in class that she like had a secret room where she would do her writing. That anyone who was approaching it, like the the doors were really loud to get to it. So she'd hear if anyone was coming and she'd put away her writing before anyone could come (laughs) see her. It sounds like a horror story or something. So, um, also originally Austin wrote a draft of the story in 17, in the 1790s. It was published in 1811. Um, and that first version was an epistolary novel. And that's a novel that is told entirely as letters that are being written back and forth. But then in the early 1800s, she revised it into a more traditional narrative. 
And uh, it's been noted that this story bears some similarities to a 1796 novel that was titled A Gossip's Love. And that was about two sisters, one who is logical and has the very subtle name of Prudentia Homespun. (laughs) And the other sister is very emotional and highly romantic. And her name is Marianne. Um, That is interesting. So a lot of people speculate that Jane Austen probably was familiar with that one. So besides the fact that there's two sisters, one who's really logical, one who's emotional, and that the emotional one is named Marianne, um, the Marianne story in that has some similarities to Marianne's um, story in Sense and Sensibility. So there's a lot of people speculate that Jane Austen was um, doing a version of that other novel. It's not, certainly not beat for beat. And uh, Marianne's story in A Gossip's Love, um, she ends up marrying uh, this uh, other highly romantic gentleman, and then they just have an unhappy marriage where they both say, you know what, there wasn't really anything here. It was just emotion. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And as I said, in 1995, there was a film adaptation that was written by Emma Thompson and directed by Ang Lee, and Emma Thompson stars in it as Eleanor, and Kate Winslet is Marianne, and it has uh, Hugh Grant as Edward, and uh, um, Colonel Brandon is Alan Rickman, Rickman, and it is one of the better adaptations of any novel that I've ever seen. I mean, adaptation theory is a crazy, messy thing, but that one is, for me, a translate everything you'd want from the novel is there on the screen. I remember really enjoying it, but like I said, I I actually had the couples crossed. <laughs> so I kept waiting for one thing to happen. And I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> She's not supposed to marry Alan Rickman. <laughs> so uh, anyway, but yeah, it is a delightful film. If you uh, saw it after some foot, foot surgery, you may have had some drugs coursing through your system, I'm guessing. <laughs> I had. I had plenty of drugs, and I actually had some uh, some crazy uh, side effects. And I had to call my doctor and say, I need to get on some other drugs because <laughs> I am really not responding well to this. Or responding a little too well. <laughs> Before you jump into your long synopsis, we would just remind listeners that uh, you can take advantage of great deals from Amazon by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash deals or by making any of your Amazon purchases by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And uh, as the holiday season is approaching, please do not forget to make any of your purchases through protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And we get a little kickback from that. It looks exactly like regular Amazon. Uh, and for all intents and purposes for you, it is, except we get a little uh, percentage of uh, of your purchase price goes out of Amazon's pocket and into ours so that we can have a little Christmas. Also, a little, little holiday season. Or at least keep hosting our podcast online. <laughs> All right, you got a synopsis for us? I do. All right, uh, Sense and Sensibility. Mr. Dashwood dies, leaving his estate to John, his son from his first marriage. His second wife and their three daughters, Eleanor, who is cool, calm, and logical, Marianne, who is emotional and romantic, and Margaret, who does not matter, will inherit <laughs> a small income. <laughs> Margaret, if this was Lizzie Bennet Diaries, we could just make Margaret the cat. <laughs> yes. Um, while he was ailing, Mr. Dashwood had made his son promise to take care of his stepmother and his half-sisters, and 
John, the son, he plans to do this, and he, he's, like, all on board until his wife, Fanny, talks him down from all of his generous plans by insisting that four women really don't need all that much to live on. And Fanny's brother, Edward, who is a low-key and somber individual, he visits, and he seems to like Eleanor, but it's very, like, muted flirtations that happen with him and Eleanor. Uh, but this is all to Fanny's dismay. She does not like the idea of her brother, Edward, fancying uh, Eleanor or any of the Dashwoods. So Mrs. Dashwood moves herself and her daughters to a cottage that is near her cousin, Sir John Middleton. This is one of the gossip mongers that Todd (laughs) was mentioning earlier. And this new home is much more modest than what they're accustomed to. And Sir John is quite the social butterfly. And he loves to introduce everyone to everyone, whether they want to be introduced or not. (laughs) He is hilarious. He thinks everyone is going to love everyone else's company at all times. And through Sir John, they meet Colonel Brandon, a reserved bachelor who seems attracted to Marianne, but he is positively ancient, Todd. He is 35 years old. Oh my gosh. Don't even, don't get me started on this. I, I was running and listening to this on Audible and, and I think my pace slowed like by, you know, half when I realized that I am almost as old as Colonel Brandon. (laughs) Marianne, so... Um, Colonel Brandon seems to have some interest in Marianne, even though he has really deep conversations with Eleanor, he seems more attracted to Marianne, but Marianne is just convinced that a man that age could never fall in love for real. Uh, it just couldn't, couldn't be done. So Cause he wears flannel well, waistcoats and, and he's 35 and he, years old. And he has, I mean, and he has some arth- arthritic limbs, the gall to be that old and single. So, yes. <laughs> One day, Marianne is out for a walk, and it begins raining, and she sprains her ankle. And then through the storm, a dashing, young, and masculine John Willoughby appears, and he helps her home. Marianne does not hide her interest in Willoughby, and soon the two are inseparable, and they discover that they have the exact same interests, opinions, and level of passion about everything ever. This is, um, I wanted them to start singing Love is an Open Door. (laughs) From, from, uh, Frozen. From Frozen, yeah, totally. That's t- that's like if if you're if you're trying to visualize this relationship, it's totally Anna and uh, Hans. I agree with that uh, in many ways, actually. <laughs> so, <laughs> little little hint of a spoiler there. So uh, let's see. Actually, there's a lot of similarity between <laughs> between uh, Sense and Sensibility and Frozen that I never had thought about. My goodness. I hadn't either. You keep uh, ruminating on that. We can circle back around after this. Okay, go for it. <laughs> uh, one day, while everyone is now hanging out as, you know, the uh, upper middle, middle upper class do in Regency era England, uh, Colonel Brandon receives a message and he just abruptly leaves everyone. And uh, then not many days later, Willoughby announces that he, you know, he's going to be off to London and he acts as though this shouldn't be a big deal to anyone because he's never had any attachments to Marianne and certainly no one should think that they were... You know, being flirtatious ever, even though they've been hanging out nonstop, joined at the hits, uh, hips. And Mary Ann is distraught. She gets her wallow on, and she can wallow with the best heroines of the Romantic era. <laughs> so, um, everyone is is uh, gossiping at this point that they are engaged. I mean, everyone is assuming that they are engaged. Yeah, Marianne isn't, like, misreading the situation. This is, like, universal. Everyone sees them interact and says those two are wildly in love and going to get married. 
And yeah. then Edward, uh, or no, not Edward, but Willoughby, he just Willoughby. ups up and leaves and says this, you know, I got to go see you all later and acts like this is nothing at all. Then Edward, and then again, this is, uh, the, uh, Fanny's brother, Edward, um, he drops by and he's, you know, nice to everyone. And he and Eleanor kind of coyly flirt in a very subdued manner. And then after he leaves, Sir John Middleton drops by with some cousins, Anne and Lucy Steele. So these cousins hang out for a while and Eleanor and Marianne really don't want to, but <laughs> they're being, well, okay. Eleanor's being polite. Marianne just kind of goes off and mopes by herself. But after Lucy has hung out for a little while and she feels like she's gotten to know Eleanor and can trust her, Lucy reveals that she has been secretly engaged to Edward. Yes. The same Edward who has been dropping by and chatting with Eleanor and they've been engaged for four years and they're just waiting for his situation in life to sort itself out before they actually go and announce their engagement and get married. You see, Edward's older brother is the favorite son in the family and is set to inherit everything. And Edward has never really done anything like ever in his life. So he can't support himself without his mother's help. (laughs) And his mother would not approve. He's no Darcy. No, his mother would not approve of a low match such as Lucy Steele. Um, So they have to continue on in this, heartbreaking secret engagement limbo. So I, I think, I don't know. It seems to me, and like I said, I've, I saw the film once when I was heavily drugged and then I listened to it, uh, again, just recently over the last couple of days. But it seems to me that you're kind of underselling the relationship between Edward and Eleanor. She is pretty convinced that they're getting married. I wouldn't say that they're getting married, but that there is definite attraction there. Mm, she's, I mean, she's not even close to as romantic as Marianne, but she's pretty she's pretty convinced that he's the guy for her. Yes, but I don't. She is not convinced that there is any plans for marriage, though. Okay, but I mean, she's she is really sad when she finds out that he is engaged to Lucy and shocked. Like she feels she feels absolutely 100% betrayed. Yeah, I she wants to marry him, but she in no way thinks that they are approaching an understanding, I don't think. Because she's okay. too, too reserved to have taken that from cues without any actual conversations about it, and they've never had a conversation about it. Do you agree with that? Mm, 90%. <laughs> I think that I think that you and I have slightly different readings on how committed or how convinced she is that, that they're going to get married, but, uh, but I think that in the, the the foundation of that relationship we agree on. Yeah. But I 100% agree that she wants to marry him and she is shocked when she finds out that he is engaged to someone I else. just, I just think that because she's so, because she is so cool and level headed that the fact that she is thunderstruck and that she spends months grieving over this relationship, that it tells me that she, she thought that, that, that was, that, that was going to be it for her. But she, she I, I think grieving. If she hadn't. Grieving is if too she strong was a like, word. Okay, we're getting to the. Mm, I don't know, man. You look at the text when she talks to Marianne about about how she felt afterwards. We'll, uh, continue. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's Here see. and I thought we weren't going to have anything to say about this novel. <laughs> 
Okay, trying to boost spirits, Eleanor and Marianne accompany Sir John's wife to London. Marianne desperately hopes to meet Willoughby there. She writes him letters, which apparently you should only do if you're actually engaged. Uh, but he never responds to those letters. At a dance, she sees him, and she makes a bit of a scene before he comes over and kind of awkwardly greets her, and he's very cold towards her. And then the next day, Willoughby uh, returns all of Marianne's letters and a lock of her hair. And again, this was shockingly, shockingly forward of him to have taken that when they were not actually engaged. It was just such a big deal that he had a lock of her hair. So Colonel Brandon stops by, and he reveals that when he had left their party weeks ago, when he just up and left, it was because he had received word of his ward, a Miss Williams. It turns out that Willoughby had seduced her and ditched her when she got pregnant. So Brandon had been in love with Miss Williams' mother, but uh, that woman uh, had married Brandon's brother and been in an unhappy marriage uh, and then had Miss Williams. And after... Brandon's brother and the woman that he'd been in love with both pass on. Uh, that is when he become uh, Miss Williams becomes his ward. Did I get all that right, Todd? The details there. Um, yes, I think so. <laughs> I think so. This this part was a little muddy for me, but uh, continue. Okay, now Lucy and Anne Steele show up in London while Marianne does some more Olympic level wallowing in her heartbrokenness, and <laughs> <laughs> she really is good at this. This is why I feel like um, if. Marianne is our level of grief. Like we say, she's grieving. Eleanor does not grieve <laughs> about uh, about Edward. Like she's she's upset. She obviously has lost attachment, but it is not anything approaching what Marianne gets gets going on here. Uh, continue. I I I have a lot. Of, I have some thoughts about this, but <laughs> continue with your synopsis. All right. Well, they're still in London. Anne reveals Lucy's secret engagement to Edward's family, and they are not pleased. And they order Edward to break off this engagement. But he is a man of principle and morals. And he refuses uh, to break off the engagement. And Edward is summarily disinherited. But he still plans to marry Lucy. Now, Colonel Brandon, he hears about all this. And he very much respects Edward's sense of duty and honor. And knowing that Edward... Colonel Brandon respects Edward's sense of duty and honor. And knowing that... Uh, Edward plans to enter the church to try and earn a living for his family. He offers Edward a small parsonage on his land. And then going back to the country from London, Marianne just becomes miserably physically ill. Like, all of her emotional angst is now manifest physically. Willoughby hears about this, and he arrives, and he speaks with Eleanor. Not He doesn't go see Marianne. He just comes and talks to Eleanor, and he tells her that he really did love Marianne. Not at first. He was kind of just toying with her because he's a jerk face. But then he actually got attached to her, and this ability to love another human being seems to shock him. However, his family found out about his earlier relationship with Miss Williams, and he was disinherited. So he had to go marry someone for money, of which Marianne had none. So he left, went to London, and he sweet-talked a ditzy rich girl and proposed to her. And (laughs) she was with him at the dance, which is why he acted so strangely. And then she also discovered all of Marianne's letters and the lock of hair and made him send them back. After Marianne... He is a real... Willoughby is a total piece of work. (laughs) He He is really something else. When Marianne recovers, Eleanor tells her that Willoughby really did love her. And that actually puts her mind a bit at ease because she was worried that she was just so naive and foolish and had been taken in uh, for loving, uh, for falling in love with him. But to know that he actually was in love with her made, like, made her feel less foolish about it all. So Edward now drops by. 
and Eleanor congratulates him on his marriage. And he says, oh, you must mean my brother's marriage. <laughs> because it seems that when Edward was disinherited, Lucy decided that she preferred the now rich older brother. <laughs> um, and so she went and married him. And it's kind of, it, this is another like muddy section, like how this leap happened. Um, yes. <laughs> it wasn't the most clear bit of the narrative for me. I'm sure there are listeners right now that are screaming the exact details of how this happened. But in the end, what, Sorry, listeners. what matters is that Lucy <laughs> na- is now married to Edward's older brother. And Edward is now quite unattached, but he hopes to not remain so, Eleanor, wink, wink. So Edward and Eleanor marry. And Marianne, realizing that her previous, previously held opinion that you can only love once in your life was wrong, she falls in love with Colonel Brandon, and they marry, and they live happily ever after the end. Good job. That was very succinct, but I think you covered all the, all the main points. Way to go. Yes. That was like one of the shortest long synopsis, <laughs> long summaries we've ever had. For a fairly long book. No One Piece summary. <laughs> you can look back one episode in the uh, in the feed, in the listeners, feed. to episode number 93 for an epic summary that was provided for the manga series One Piece. Well, okay. a small part of the manga series One Piece. I have... I'm sorry. I think we should go back to this point now because... Because it... it so much of my interpretation of this novel depends on my interpretation of what happens early on between Eleanor and Edward. And I'm happy to have uh, listeners write in and tell me that I'm wrong on this. But I think that they are – that he is giving her more – like pretty um, substantial signs that he is interested in her. And enough so that when she finds out that he's married to Lucy or that he's going to marry Lucy, Eleanor is really upset. And the reason that she doesn't go fall ill like Marianne does is because she it's just not in her nature to do that. And the reason that I say this is because when when the engagement finally is made public, it's months after Ma- uh, Willoughby has left Marianne and Marianne has been just wallowing in self-pity for months. and. And Lou, uh, and Marianne finds out about it, and she says, Eleanor, can you believe that Willoughby is is engaged to Lucy? Like, what a two-timer. Edward is engaged. Edward, I'm sorry. That Edward <laughs> is engaged to Lucy. What a two-timer. And Eleanor is pretty calm, and she says, yeah, I've known about it for about four months. And Marianne is beside herself, and... She says, I can't believe I've been such a jerk because all this time she's saying, oh, you, you're so happy because you have your relationship with Edward and I have nothing. And Eleanor has just been keeping it inside. And then listeners go back and look at the text or listen to Juliet Stevenson's uh, interpretation of this in the audiobook. But Eleanor unloads on Marion. And this is also one of the best scenes in the Sense and Sensibility film adaptation. But she, I mean, in the... In the audiobook, she unloads on her, and and we get more passion and emotion from Eleanor than we get in the whole rest of the novel combined. And she says, I have been working through this in silence on my own for four months, and it has not been easy <laughs> at all. Which is why I think that it, it makes Edward's... I think this is important because I think it makes Edward's sort of misstep in getting engaged to Lucy more of a problem 
if you just if you just interpret it as like, well, you know, it's just sort of um, innocent flirt- flirting, then there's no problem with him being engaged to Lucy. But I think there is a problem. No, I absolutely. Edward prefers Eleanor, and Eleanor it, it wants to marry Edward. But I, the way you were talking about it, it made it seem like they had an agreement to be married, and there they had no agreement to be married. No, they had no official agreement to be married. And they, they never touched on it verbally between each other, even. Uh, fine. But, but that doesn't mean that she doesn't think that she was going to marry him. I, well, I'm saying she wants to marry him. But I don't think you can say that like the plans are, the wheels are turning and the plans are in motion for them to get married at all. See, and that's where I disagree, because I think, I think that only with that at, at least uh, understanding between them, uh, unspoken, unofficial, informal, but that's where this relationship is headed, then I don't think that Edward getting engaged to Lucy really matters that much. And then when he comes back and he's like, oh, sorry, then it's like, okay, whatever. But I think, uh, I don't know, I, I think that his getting engaged to Lucy is a is a big, a big, big problem for him. Well, that was, yeah, I mean, this was years before he met Eleanor. Uh, yeah, you're right. And so, but, like, it was an indiscretion of his youth. Or his, le- is his leading her on. I think he led her on. Yes, I think, it, like, he realized, as he got to know Eleanor, that this is what he wanted out of her relationship, and what he had with Lucy was not. Like, he, uh-huh. and he talks, like, pretty openly that when I, I knew Lucy in my, like, when I was very young still, and... She was basically my only acquaintance as far as women right. goes. And I was like, this is great. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's like Pirates, Pirates of Penzance. Penzance. Yeah. <laughs> we just said, <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> Lucy is Angela Lansbury. <laughs> so, I, th- I mean, I think we're in agreement about, like, how they feel towards each other. I just don't agree that we can say that they're planning on getting married. Okay, fine. We, there are other things to talk about. Yes, but- many. Um, but I love that scene when when Marianne is is telling her, "How can you be so cool and calm?" and and she says, "You have no idea what I have gone through all by myself." Oh, I remember being in the theater when I was thirteen years old and watching that scene and like weeping. The, no, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I remember Emma Thompson's performance. Which okay, it's Emma Thompson. It's always going to be a great performance. But I remember her performance yeah. in that scene very distinctly and. I remember like the emotion of that scene hitting me when I was, you know, yes. just a 13 year old watching it. So <laughs> I think, uh, yes, absolutely. I, we're, we're kind of saying the same thing and getting hung up on one small point. So let's move on. I agree. Uh, Continue. let's talk about the title real quick. Sense and sensibility. I'm so glad so that you brought this up. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember when I was a kid, the title made no sense to me. <laughs> Uh-huh. And uh, I just kind of lumped it in with Pride and Prejudice, just thinking that Jane Austen had a thing for alliterative titles with an ampersand in the middle. <laughs> but I think this sense and sensibility is actually, it really is like the key theme for the entire the entire novel, with um, Eleanor being sense, you know, real common sense and, and basic sense and um, logic. And sensibility about like sensing emotion and feeling emotion and reacting to emotion is very much Marianne. Yeah, it seems like there are times in this novel, I think she kind of plays fast and loose with the term sensibility, because sometimes she she uses the term sensibility to refer to someone with good sense, like Eleanor. 
often she uses it to refer to, I think, what we would consider sensitivity. Yes, I think the, word, the word's meaning has somewhat shifted across, you know, the 200 years since this was written. Yeah, but I think even inside of the text, um, the, 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 that word sensibility has kind of a fluid meaning. But, but it's, it's totally at the heart of this novel. And we see that that insensibility or insensitivity of almost every person <laughs> in the novel, this whole, like, uh, chorus of, you know, older women and younger women and older men and younger... <laughs> and younger men, and they're all just gossiping with no regard for the consequences of their, of their gossip. And I think that that's, it's, it, it's really funny, but it's also really sad the way that they, they, they act in ways that are really hurtful to a lot of people, and, um, and it's, it's insensitive, and they shouldn't do that. Right. Uh, so just real quick, I was looking up some online about the word origin of sensibility and its meaning. And uh, the first definition is the ability to appreciate and respond to complex emotional uh, influences. Uh, and I think that's <laughs> emotional influences yeah. is very much Marianne. <laughs> Uh, but it's also interesting that, uh, like the use over time, it has a peak in the early 1800s when this book was being, um, interesting. was published and it's kind of fell out of, uh, into less and less common usage since then. Huh. Yeah. Um, but I think because of that dichotomy and because these two sisters are so clearly different and like different generationally, <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. like, like, even though they're born a couple years apart, like I was talking about this with my, my younger sister, we're not born that far apart, but we've been watching, uh, this most recent season of survivor, which has one tribe of generation X and one tribe of millennials. And, oh, and uh, like they, they over very much over, over hit like the differences between these two generations. But she's, she asked me, she's like, you're right on the bubble. Like, which one do you identify with more? And I said, well, probably the traits they're talking about more generation X. And she goes, I'm 100% the millennial. I don't understand <laughs> the generation X. So we're like born not that far apart, but we really also hit like a significant divide in terms of technology. Interesting. And like, she was born into a house that had a computer. I remember the computer first coming into our house, even though we're not that far apart. Um, so uh -huh. there, there's some differences there, but this divide between Eleanor and Marianne kind of feels like that. Like, you, I mean, this is bridging a, an era between, uh, romanticism, right. And, uh, and more of the stoicism, you know, before. And I think we see some of that difference. Yeah. It's it. Yeah. I mean, it, it chronologically, it's at the very end of what I would call neoclassicism and the beginning of romanticism. It seems like it it's falls Tonally, it feels more to me like uh, neoclassical than it does romantic. Right, but Marianne, it's as a the celebration one. of we had we had this discussion. Uh, I don't know if Anne of Green Gables about. Yes, it was in Anne of Green Gables. Thank you. In which we talked about, you know, are, are there ever any novels that celebrate just like common sense and goodness and <laughs> and not being like a totally crazy romantic uh, hero or heroine? And this is this novel falls clearly in that category i think right but at the same time i was gonna say because the economy between these sisters is so great and um because it follows eleanor a bit more and you feel like uh, marianne's being a little bit ridiculous at times uh a lot of people view it that way but i think there's also somewhat of a message of marianne learning to be uh, a little more level-headed like her sister eleanor but also eleanor learning to be a little bit more romantic from marianne 
So this is this brings me to um, one of my one of my biggest questions at the end of this novel is so there's a book that's called Marry Him: The Case for Settling for Mister Good Enough. Todd, how do you know about this book? <laughs> um, I can't remember. It was in I'm researching for some. Oh, there's a poem. There's a great Spanish uh, poem by a guy named Becker, and uh, and it's about him uh, in the search for the perfect woman. And so we were discussing, it, it, and he's a romantic, and so he he uh, the the poem is the voices of these uh, women that come to him, and the first one is. Uh, blonde and she's beautiful and she's like virtuous and she says come with me and i will make all of your wildest dreams comes true and he says no i don't want you and then the next woman that comes to him is um exotic and dark-skinned and she says come i will turn your life into a pleasure land and he says no i don't want you and then the final lady comes and says uh, i am i am incorporeal and i am uh, a vain dream of fog and mist and light. And he says, that's what I want. <laughs> and so we talk about this, like this pursuit of an impossible ideal, right? That even having real live women come to you as, as beautiful and amazing as they might be, uh, or to this, to this author, what he really wants is the one thing that he cannot have at all. And this book is the is the total contrast to that, which is uh, just settle for Mister Good Enough. And I feel like I feel like Edward is so Mister Just Good Enough. Right. Well, I think Eleanor not not for Eleanor, but the way he's presented, like you said, he's kind of like he's no Darcy, like he's no romantic lead from a lot of these novels. I I mean, no. I kind of jokingly said like he's never done anything in his life, so he can't support his family by himself, but. <laughs> That's kind of how it gets presented is, well, I kind of want to do this, but my family said no, so I didn't. And they wanted me to do that, and I didn't want to, so I didn't. His mom <laughs> wants him to be famous and be a great orator, maybe go into politics, and he's like, oh, man, there is no way. <laughs> and uh, I think that's really interesting. I mean, I don't know how many uh, young women out there have posters of Edward on their wall. I mean, not the this Edward, not the other Edward. Right? <laughs> They're a lot with the Twilight Edward. <laughs> yeah, on their wall thinking, I just want a guy who has no ambition in life. <laughs> you know, Doc, um, when you had said that there's this book called Settling for Mr. Good Enough, and I said, how did you um, know about this book? I The best possible answer you could have given would have been, oh, I gave it to Betty when we were dating. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been a while since I've talked about Spanish literature, but... Um, <laughs> But uh, no, I I just I think that's so interesting that the end of this book, I don't know, and I well, and the, also, the older uh, I get, the more romantic I become. I think, <laughs> I think, but there was something kind of dissatisfying in the end of this book for me. Like, really, that's it? You're you're gonna go back to this guy that was so the entire time uh, that Edward has been getting to know Eleanor and actually falling in love with her and she falling in love with him, he was actually engaged. And it's not like he took a lock of her hair the way Willoughby does. Um, but, but she thinks yeah. that he has. Right, because he, he has a lock of hair in a ring and Marianne says it that, um, that it's, it's her hair or that it's Eleanor's hair. 
And Eleanor's like, well, I didn't give it to him, but maybe he, I don't know, got it somehow. I don't know what the thought process and then was he, right And then he makes up, I think he makes up some lame excuse and no, and nobody believes it. And Eleanor looks at the hair and she's, and she thinks about like, Oh, in the, in the right light, it kind of looks like the color of my hair. I, I actually think it is. I'm, I wonder how he got that hair from me. And you had said earlier, Joe, that uh, when uh, Marianne gives Willoughby a lock of her hair, that it's a big sign of commitment. Oh, it's a which, huge deal. Which goes back, which goes back to my uh, my initial thought that she thinks that this is really, really serious. If she if she's convinced herself that he's wearing her hair around his finger, then she's pretty far down the rabbit hole, I think. Right. That sentence sounded a bit more like a witchcraft than romance, but I follow your meaning. <laughs> so, uh, so what do you make of the end of this? Like this uh, happily ever after in which we have all of this uh, miscommunication and back and forth and will they, won't they... And it gets wrapped up in like the last five pages of the novel in which Edward and Eleanor settle down and then Marianne and Colonel Brandon settle down and then they're just like happily ever after. And there's a brief mention of the youngest sister still living with their mom. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So what do you make of this ending? Do you find it satisfying? Do you find it frustrating? Are you, do, do you love this? Uh, I don't think I'm alone in saying this, and I, I think this is the confusion you ha- had, but some of the best conversations in the entire novel are actually between Eleanor and Colonel Brandon. Yes. And it seems like they are actually on the same wavelength, whereas the people they're in love with are not <laughs> on the same wavelength yeah. with them. Uh, both Brandon being in love with uh, Marianne and Marianne not thinking she could give him the time of day for most of this novel. And then uh, Marianne and Willoughby, we like, we know all of their backstory. And now we know that Eleanor and Edward, it was all a big mess and confusion. And there was a secret engagement. And it almost feels like, couldn't Eleanor and Colonel Brandon just say, you know what? There's a lot of stupidity around us. <laughs> but you and I, we've got level heads. What say we make a go of this? I absolutely agree. I, I in my mind, I had Alan Rickman with Emma Thompson from the beginning until ninety eight percent of the way through this book. Have you ever seen? <laughs> wait, wait. Are you confused? I'm wondering if part of the confusion is, aren't they a couple in Love Actually? Am I remembering that right? I have never seen Love Actually. Okay, I think Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman are a couple it, in that one. It, it's not that. I just, it just it doesn't. <laughs> but, know, but but no, the characters on the page. I think it feels like. They, even though we're told about um, Eleanor and Edward's love, it feels like there's more common uh, or commonalities with Eleanor and Brandon. I agree. So why don't they get together? Well, he is in love with Marianne. (laughs) And even though... (laughs) But why? Maybe he needs her. Well, uh, he's, like, we have Marianne as, like, the ultimate romantic, but, like, his feelings for Marianne seem to be rooted more in, like, the classical idea of love at first sight romance than um, than I wonder if there's kind of, like, a Jane Eyre Rochester thing going on between Colonel Brandon and, uh, and Marianne. Like, I mean, Jane Eyre is the classic romantic character, right? Like, romantic female 
lead. <laughs> I'll allow it. Um, <laughs> Go on. And Rochester is an older man who's been beat up by life, and he's gloomy. He's gloomy and stoic, and he needs Jane Eyre to kind of be that spark for him to help him remember what it means to be happy. And maybe if he was with Eleanor, they would just be like, that would just be too. There's not enough balance there in that relationship. They're just both too kind of stoic. Right. She doesn't, there's not enough yin for the yang or yang for the yin. But is there with Eleanor and Edward? I see. This is the thing. I, I find myself falling into this trap that I find my students falling into that frustrates me in which I find myself coming down really hard on Edward for being a doofus. <laughs> and it frustrates me that Eleanor just gives him a pass on that. Yes. And so that like there needs to be a conversation s- about you were engaged to another woman. <laughs> Well, they do have it. They do have a conversation, and that's that's part of the denouement of this. Is Edward comes back and he says, "I'm really sorry," and then he explains it to her, and and he basically says, "I was I was a dork, and I shouldn't have done what I did. I did. I'm sorry. I'm so glad that I'm not married to Lucy." And and there is this kind of uh, happy, like comedic ending in which everybody gets their just desserts, and. And then they get, they settle down and get married, which I think is far more, far closer to true life, right? <laughs> like, I can see this happening in real life. I, I feel like this is, the relationship between Eleanor and Edward is totally authentic. That's not the problem that I have with it. <laughs> it's the, the problem that I have is that it doesn't feel romantic enough. But I'm, the older I get, the more romantic I become. <laughs> And as I look at it, I just think, huh, I guess that's what probably real-life human beings would do. Yeah. They would, would get over it, and they would get married, and she would settle for Mr. Good Enough. Well, and it, I, I don't know that Mr. Good Enough is being fair to her feelings for him, because she is obviously in love with him, yeah. as, as has been well-established. Uh, yes. It, um, but I think when we're talking about, like, does it feel satisfying? Like, the ending, I feel happy for Colonel Brandon, because... <laughs> I don't know if it's because it was performed by Alan Rickman in the first film adaptation, but like I've always enjoyed that character <laughs> and him getting Marianne makes me happy for him. And Marianne getting Colonel Brandon, I think is going to be good for her and make her into a better person. <laughs> well, now she's like the mistress over a whole, a whole uh, village. Well, I'm not talking about like the wealth and... situation. I'm just talking about like personality wise. I think she's going to no, be improved. I'm not, ta- I, I'm not talking about the wealth situation either. I'm talking about the maturity situation. Like she has a huge responsibility now. And she steps into it, and and we get like one or two paragraphs about this huge, like tectonic shift in her personality, and it's awesome. In which she she overcomes all of the crazy, like the crazy romantic side of her, and kind of mellows down, but not so much that she's still not the perfect woman for Brandon, like to help him with his thing, and he's the perfect man for her. I love that that half of this ending. I really like Eleanor in this novel and I wish that she had somebody better to be with than Edward <laughs> because I'm just not impressed with him. But you know, it's like it it is what it is. One of the things that I love about this novel are 
all of these minor characters that come in and they just have um, really just bit parts, but they're hilarious. And one that totally stood out to me is uh, it's the woman who her husband is just a total, he's like negative about everything. She's married to Eeyore basically. And he hates everything. He's a, he, he's unkind to her. He doesn't like their kids. And she just is so happy about everything. <laughs> and he's like, and he, he like, honey, he, he just looks at his newspaper and she'll talk to him and, and she won't even, <laughs> he won't even respond to her. And she's like, he is so clever that way. She he is so droll. And the Juliet Stevenson in the audible book, she does this lady so perfectly. And she does this funny laugh and she just, and I think there's part of me when I, when I read that, that's like, come on, lady, you've got to realize that your husband is a doofus and, <laughs> and you should not be happy about that. And then the other part of me just admires her grit and determination in being happy in, in less than happy circumstances. Yeah, she's definitely making the best of it. And I, I thought that was cool. And there are just a lot of characters that come in and they're, they're just fantastic for their, you know, 30 seconds of screen time, and then they're off, and they're not really central to the plot, but they make the novel better. They form this really rich tapestry. It's kind of like um, when we did our Stranger Things discussion, we mentioned, like, every side character that flies in, even if they only have, you know, four scenes, they're, Mm -hmm. you know, they're developed enough that you feel like that's a person there, and not just... Uh, an actor that was hired to deliver three lines of dialogue in the entire series. And I think in this book, it's the same way for these side characters to get introduced. They're not just providing some exposition, even if that does happen, like um, the servant that makes Eleanor think that Edward is now married. Right. Yeah. (laughs) When he comes in and he's, he's like always talking about how I got some information, but not all the information because my duties didn't allow me to sit there and listen. (laughs) And it allows the misunderstanding to make everything confusing. But it, but it's it's um, presented in a way that that feels like a real you know footman or whatever his role was you know for the family. Yeah, yeah, I love it. It it would be interesting. Do you do you have a year just off the top of your head of Jane Eyre? British Gothic, so it's going to be in the eighteen thirties, right? Let's see here. Jane Eyre. Oh, eighteen forty-seven. I was off. I just if I were a if I were an English literature teacher, I would love to teach this novel and then teach Jane Eyre it, because I think it shows just that perfect transition from this time period in which we we get a sense of what romanticism will be, but it's totally like this it's a side story. It's not the main event. The main event is about sense and sensibility and being, uh, you know, being clear headed and, and all, all of these, <laughs> it's amazing to me how, how focused everyone is on money and economics and how much a year does, are you going to get from this? And so much strategy and thought that, uh, about the good life and that the good life is all about how much money you make in, uh, in a year. And 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 who are you going to secure that from and the, all the strategy that goes with that and then you slide from this into 
uh, into Jane Eyre and romanticism in which money is, it's still a factor, but, but really what's at the heart of Jane Eyre, I think is, is the heart and love and these really intense emotions that supersede all of the strategy of just making it. And, and the story that's kind of a side story in Sense of Sensibility uh, becomes the main event in, in, you know, 30 years later. Yeah. And I think that's, I think it's cool. And I think it's also really interesting because like, what is our, if you're going to try and sum up what our cultural idea of a Jane Austen novel is, like what are Jane Austen novels about? Um, without like <laughs> digging into the actual, you know, digging in super close to readings. Like if you just hear, Oh, it's a Jane Austen, it's an adaptation of a Jane Austen novel and you're going to go to a movie. What's your expectation? The expectation is that there will be lots of fancy parties and, uh, lots of miscommunications, and in the end, everybody falls in love and gets together. Right, and I, I and I think it's interesting that um, both in our discussion about Pride and Prejudice, both when we did the Pride and Prejudice film and we talked about the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, and now in Sense and Sensibility, um, a huge aspect of these novels is actually like the hard tension of how difficult it is financially to like envision your life when you're a woman living in this era. Yes. Like, it is, um, when, when we did the uh, Pride and Prejudice film, we talked about uh, Joe Wright, the director, saying, Mrs. Bennett is a hilarious character, but think about how just absolutely um, terrifying it would Desperate. be to have yeah. five daughters in this era, and what are you going to do when none of them are married? <laughs> and, yes. and there's not going to be an inheritance that is going to allow you literally to live. <laughs> like, what, what comes next? And this also is like very much driven by these economic realities that are not at all a part of our cultural discussion of Jane Austen. I think there's a lot of um, very contemporary criticism for what Jane Austen was seeing in her time that happens in these novels, but it, it, you can miss it because of the fun snark and witticism that Jane Austen has. And also, as you yes. said, all the kind of farcical misunderstandings that tend to happen in her plots and also the romantic overlay, you know, that, that's on top of it. Cause there is, you know, th there is a love story that is at the core of, um, a lot of her work, but I think in every single one, there's also some social commentary that I think maybe she doesn't get enough credit for. Yeah. Um, uh, I, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I don't know that I have a ton to add to that. I was just thinking about um about how the romantic like ro romanticism isn't born in 18 in the 1830s. It's it's like early romanticism is going on at this time and it's and it's part of the reason why no, like Marianne isn't isn't like uh I I think Marianne is a reaction to some of the uh threads of romanticism that Jane Austen was was reading in her own, you know, in, in books that are already been published. Yeah, and so is Northanger Abbey. Northanger Abbey is absolutely a response to early Romanticism. It's just interesting that in in the canon, uh, Romanticism kind of wins out over <laughs> over this neoclassicism that makes fun of Romanticism. It's, it's almost it seems like it would be the reverse, but it's not. <laughs> anyway, I just I think it's interesting. So, do you have any final thoughts on this novel? Yeah, it it is a joy to read. Um, I've praised Jane Austen's writing in when we talked about Pride and Prejudice, but there's just a pleasure in the way that she's able to turn a phrase and, as we said, to present these characters, but also the dialogue is a lot of fun. 
you don't get as much snark as you will get from Lizzie Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, but it's still um, uh, definitely worth the time to to read the text. Um, if you don't feel like you have that time, I would highly recommend the 1995 film. Uh, again, that was uh, the screenplay was adapted by Emma Thompson, and she gives a wonderful performance in there. And it's just a really great cast and some beautiful directing in that one. What about you, Todd? It's fun. It's just a really fun story. <laughs> and there are great characters that uh, you care about. And as you pointed out, the the prose, the writing is phenomenal. Jane Austen is one of the best. <laughs> she really uh she really knows how to write and um and it's uh it's just a lot of fun. It's a really fun story. And as we said, like we can love this story even if we feel a little dissatisfied with some of the maybe the the lack of romance in Eleanor and Edward's relationship, but I think um the best stories can leave you kind of wondering is that the best way things could have ended? And that's still fine. You know, it's still, still a great novel. Yeah, it, I, I don't think she has to put a, a, a perfect bow on this uh, in order for it to be a great story or for these to be great characters. I, I think Eleanor and Marianne both qualify as great characters in a great story. Uh, and the fact that it ends and I have this, you know, kind of a, a bee in my bonnet about the way that it ended in no way takes any value away from <laughs> the quality of this story. In fact, it probably makes it a better story if, if it leaves me with questions and uh, you know stuff to chew on for the next little while. Then it's probably a better story than one that just makes me go, oh, that was fantastic, and then I forget about it the next day. Okay, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us, and please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in iTunes and leave us a review there. It really helps us out. If you are a new listener, uh, just a note about our back catalog. We switched up our format a bit at episode 13, and so our first dozen episodes are so are a bit meandering <laughs> in terms of discussion and length and audio quality. <laughs> and uh, if you like this episode, you may enjoy checking out episode 84, where we talked about an adaptation of Pride and Prejudice called The Lizzie Bennet Diaries, or episode 77, where we discussed Jane Eyre. Uh, links to things we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com, and that's where you can find a list of all of our shows. Uh, you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss, or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter, at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack and at Jay Dorowski. Our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. And we've had great conversations there recently with our listeners, and we'd love for any of you to drop in and say hello anytime. If you would like to support the show financially, there are a few different ways you can do that. To buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation, you can click the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. All supporters on Patreon receive access to our special quickcasts which are shorter episodes in which we t uh, break down newly released films and trailers. You can also go to protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon to make all of your Amazon purchases. Just remind you, it looks exactly like regular Amazon, and it costs you nothing more, but we get a nice kickback from your purchase. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long.
uh, hey, don't forget to pull that out of this. <laughs> yeah, definitely, <laughs> definitely got to cut. That. Yeah, Here, make Andrew. a giant note. Make <laughs> a giant <laughs> note to, this, to yourself. You will not put this sound into the podcast. <laughs> when you hear that, just remind yourself you have to cut out what came before that sound. <laughs> Hey listeners, this is Joseph Jarowski with a quick addendum to the trivia. Uh, in our discussion about A Gossip Story by Jane West, I mentioned that one of the sisters was named Prudentia Homespun, and that was an error on my part. The character of Prudentia Homespun does appear in the story, but she is not one of the two sisters, so I just wanted to get that out there before any of you have A Gossip Story trivia night with your friends and family. In any event, Prudentia Homespun remains one of the greatest names of a character ever written.